Our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning as we gather together to look at this next phase in Jacob's life. Uh, this story that we find here in Scripture. And as the church, we are that group of people who have been created and called and collected together and are continually crafted through God's Word that He's given us in Scripture. And it's with that truth and it's, it's with that confidence that we approach this text and that we also come before God as His people in prayer. So let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of the gospel that we find throughout your word, the promise of the gospel that is fulfilled in Christ. As we approach this text, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be among us, giving us understanding and also affection, that we would come to love you more in it and that you would apply it in the promise of the gospel to our heads, to our hearts, and to our hands. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, we're continuing our sermon series on the God of Jacob. And here we find Jacob in perhaps the lowest place of his life. He's forced to flee his family's house because his brother Esau wants to kill him for the ways that Jacob has cheated and deceived him on multiple occasions. And he's setting out for the household of his uncle Laban, and Laban will in turn go on to deceive and to cheat Jacob. And right now, Jacob is setting out, and, and unlike his father Isaac or his grandfather Abraham, Jacob is not going with a, a company of people or a caravan of, of resources. Jacob is alone. He travels by himself through a dangerous wilderness, and he is unprotected and completely exposed to the elements, to animals, to vandals, to everything. 
all he has to lay his head upon is a rock in this dark, dark night. And consider just how dark it would get. You know, this is, this is very far away from any neighboring communities and, and long before the advent of electric lights. Jacob is vulnerable and Jacob is exposed. But it's here in the present passage in Jacob's current vulnerability that we come to see his heart and that we come to see his deepest loves. We see this in the prayer of Jacob, in Jacob's response to God. As Jacob responds to God's love for him and God's great graciousness to him. And in this passage, we are given both a theology of of love, but also a theology of, of prayer. Or we might say it better by saying that we find in this passage that both love and prayer are inseparably bound together. And towards that end, I want to look at this passage under three headings. Jacob's prayer, God's prayers, and Christ's prayers. So let's look first at Jacob's prayer. Well, in Jacob's dream, we we find that God appears to Jacob and he gives Jacob wonderful promises. He gives Jacob wonderful blessings. He promises Jacob land. He promises Jacob great offspring. And most importantly, God promises Jacob himself that he would be with Jacob and that through Jacob, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. But God also promises that he will take Jacob back to his homeland, back to his father's house. And for Jacob, this seems to be the only part of God's promise that really matters. After Jacob meets God in the dream, we're told, quote, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. God has promised here a number of great things for Jacob. Most of all, he's promised to be with Jacob, to be Jacob's God. Jacob has promised to enjoy the love and the favor and the presence of God. But Jacob is more concerned about getting back home. That's the, that's the focus of Jacob's prayer. And so we find ourselves here in an in- interesting situation that, that God and Jacob actually disagree on what Jacob's, ultimately prob- what Jacob's ultimate problem really is. In Jacob's opinion, his main problem is that he needs to get back home. But in God's assessment, Jacob's main problem is that Jacob needs to love God more. And this is not to discount the other problems that we have or the other problems that Jacob has. Home is a good thing, and and Jacob is right to wish and to want to return to his family. But this is not the greatest thing. I once heard an account of a, of a shipwreck. Uh, it was a shipwreck in the past, and the survivors, after they had, they had pieced together a raft, they had to decide where they were going to go for help. 
And they decided not to go to a nearby shore because they had heard rumors that there were cannibals there. So instead, they set out for a much longer journey to a port that was much further away, but it was a port that they were familiar with. They judged their greatest problem to be the unlikely, unfounded rumor of cannibals on a nearby shore more than dehydration along the way. Their greatest problem was actually thirst, but they didn't realize it. And had they set out for the nearby shore, their chances of survival would have been exponentially higher. Well, Jacob here is stranded, and Jacob makes the same mistake. He misjudges what his greatest problem actually is. And when we search our own hearts, we have to ask, are we doing much better? What do we perceive our biggest problem in life to be? And to be sure, we face many, many problems in life. This life is a life that's full of grief and full of sorrow. We live in a fallen world, and because we live in a fallen world, we are going to face things like job loss, professional failure, mental anguish, relational breakdown, unjust treatment, financial instability, sickness, death. All of these things are to be rightly lamented. These are not the way it's supposed to be. In the church, as the church, we are to work fervently to heal these problems. But the point here, the point that Jacob is learning is that none of these are our main problem. Our main problem is that we don't love God as we ought. Jacob says, God, if you take me back home, then, then you can be my God. Then I will follow you. And of course, we do the same thing. We treat the creator and the sustainer of the universe as our own personal Amazon account. We say, do this for me, God, and then, God, I will follow you. If you give me this job, then you will be my God. If you bring me this person to marry, then you will be my God. If you bring me good health, then you will be my God. We desire some lesser good more than the greatest good that is God himself. And a job is a very good gift from God, but it's a lesser good than God. Marriage is a very good gift from God but it's a lesser good than God. Health is a very, very good gift from God himself, but it's a lesser good than God himself. If we desire these things, we desire good things, but we don't desire the greatest thing. And this perhaps makes us wonder, well, if God chooses to withhold any good thing, things like this, if he withholds these from us, is he really good? Well, Pastor Tim Keller is helpful here. He, he says the following. He says, quote, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Again, our biggest problem is that we don't love God as we should. And when we pray, unknowing to us, 
we ask for things that both are and are not for our ultimate good. We might not understand any conceivable reason why God will withhold some good thing from us, but if he's really greater than we could ever possibly imagine, then that means he knows and orchestrates things that we cannot even begin to understand. And combine that with the truth that he loves us more than we love ourselves. The question is if we're able to trust and rest in those truths, which is not an easy thing. God may take us places we don't wish to go. Just like he did to Jacob, he might lead us through the wilderness. There's a, there's a classic scene in the, in the Narnia books where two characters are, are discussing Aslan, the, the lion, the, the Christ figure, and there, there's a conversation between Lucy and, and Aslan. And Lucy asks, isn't Aslan quite safe? But how does Mr. Beaver respond? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Is God safe? No, he brings Jacob into the wilderness. Is God safe? No, he brings us into the wilderness. The wilderness of sickness, of unemployment, of relational breakdown, of financial instability, of unfulfilled hope, and so on and so forth, and none of these are safe. Our God is not a safe God. It's a hard truth, but safety is never something that we are promised. But God is good. He's good. He's infinitely good. God loves us more than we love ourselves, and God is committed to do good for us. So then we have to ask, what is this good? What is it that we are actually promised? Paul tells us in Romans 8, Paul says the following, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be conformed to the image of his Son. The good that God promises us is not health or professional success or financial resources. He might very well give us these gifts, and if so, we should receive them gladly and gratefully and steward each well. For instance, God will bring Jacob back to his father's house. But Jacob will actually end up dying in Egypt. Jacob will return to his father's house, but he won't do so for long. We can relate. We rightly pray that God will heal us, that he might heal us from some sickness. And that would be a very good gift. But death will still overtake us. Our body will still break down. Until the resurrection of the dead, we might receive relief, but we will never receive full restoration. And if the, good that we, if the good that we most seek can be taken away in this life, then it cannot be our greatest good. If the good that we most seek in this life can be taken away, then we can have no lasting joy, no certain basis for hope, no deep peace that can endure each and every circumstance. The good that God promises us, the good that cannot be taken away, is his conforming us to the image of Christ. 
conforming us to the image of the one who loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loves his neighbor as himself. This is the good that God promises us, that we learn to love rightly and love God most of all. So, can we trust that God will take us through everything for this purpose? Can we trust that God knows what's best even if we cannot understand it all? Can we trust even when things don't make sense that God is orchestrating every aspect of our life for our good? If that's the case, then no matter what happens to you, If you increase in your love and trust for God, you are barreling down the path of the good that God has for you. If you fail in everything that day, but at the end of that day you've learned to love and trust God more, you are doing well. If you go to bed tonight loving and trusting God more then than you did when you got out of bed in the morning, you are doing well. This does not mean that we don't lament. Christians are never called to call good things, or sorry, we're never called to call bad things good. There are many bad things. Sickness, unemployment, relational breakdown, a million other misfortunes, and we are not meant to celebrate these things. They are to be lamented, and the church is to work fervently to heal these things. This is not the way it's supposed to be. However, God is so great that he promises to work our good even through these great tragedies, even through these great misfortunes. Because the good that God promises is conformity to Christ. Because God is not safe, but he's good. And God knows what Jacob needs most is conformity to Christ. And God knows that what we need most is conformity to Christ In Jacob's case, that means he needs to come back home, and that means he will one day need to reconcile with his brother. And that is not safe for Jacob. There's a good chance that Esau will kill Jacob. But it's good for Jacob. And God knows that this particular course for his life and not another will best grow Jacob's love for God and neighbor. So do we trust? Do we trust for our own lives, that while God is certainly not safe, that he is good, that he is orchestrating every aspect of our lives to form us in the ways that we need to be formed, specifically that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Do we believe that God is working every single circumstance for that purpose? To again quote Keller, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. That takes a lot of trust and a lot of faith to believe. But what other hope do we have? And so do we really believe that God is that great and that good? Can we, like Jacob, even in the most difficult hardship, say, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it? Well, you might say, fair enough. But if that's true, how does this relate to the dream? Again, God appears to Jacob above what might be translated a a ladder or, or a staircase, and it stretches from heaven 
into earth. How does all of this relate to our love and trust of God? Well, the connection lies in Jacob's response to the dream. And that brings us to our second point, God's prayers. Commentator Robert Sachs points out that there's a connection between Jacob's ladder and his anointing of the rock. Because the anointing of the rock points forward to what the act of anointing will become. In Israel's future, priests and kings will be established in their service by way of anointing. You anoint a priest, you anoint a king, and then they begin their service. And Robert Sachs calls priests and kings the, quote, gate of heaven for the people. But we can push this even further. Think about that ladder. And in the ladder, we find the very dynamics of kingship and priesthood. In a sense, the king is one who comes, uh, who, who's above the people and comes down. The king descends. In a sense, the king represents God to the people. God, or the king, is charged with enacting God's rule over the people. But in priesthood, we find the opposite dynamic. The priest is the one who represents the people before God. The priest comes and takes offerings from the people to God. And so kings and priests go up and down just like the angels in this ladder. The king is the one who comes down to us. The priest is the one who comes up to God. The king descends and the priest ascends. Well, why is this important for Jacob's situation? Why is this dynamic pictured in the ladder? Well, remember, God, sorry, Jacob is called to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Jacob has not. Jacob has loved the lesser good of home more than God. And so what has happened is Jacob has broken the royal decree of God, the true and full high king. And Jacob is called to love God not out of some arbitrary duty, but because the royal decree from God is an ethical imperative that we, as God's creatures, as humans that he's created, we have the moral and ethical responsibility to flourish. God loves us so much that we are ethically and morally bound to pursue what is best for us, to pursue our greatest joy, our fullest flourishing, our telos. And we have a great dignity here. We are like acorns who are ethically bound to become oak trees. To do otherwise is an ethical or moral infringement. And as the pre-modern world well understood, ethics is ultimately a matter of the good life, of living in accordance with the kind of creatures that we actually are. To be ethical is to flourish. And to flourish is to live the proper human life. And to live the proper human life is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. This is how God, our great high king, created us to be. Yet Jacob, in not loving God like this, he's like a tree that, that chooses to wither in warm and well-watered groves. He's like a sheep who chooses to starve in plentiful pastures. He's like a fish who chooses to suffocate because it insists on breathing above the water. 
Jacob is destroying himself and he is breaking the royal decree of the loving God. The God who knows us fully, who loves us fully, and is more committed to our flourishing than we could ever be. But this is not the final word on Jacob. Yes, Jacob, we find here, has not loved God as he should. But again, it's not only the kings who were anointed, but also the priests. Jacob has sinned in his loves. He has loved the lesser good of home more than the greatest good of God. But the priests are those who come before God on behalf of the people, making restitution for the sins of the people. And interestingly, even God himself works in a priestly way. Think about the Bible. We often think about the Bible only as God's word to us. But think, for example, of the Psalms. It's God's word for us. In a sense, in the Psalms, God is representing his people before God. In the Psalms, God is giving us words and prayers to offer to him. And why is this important? Well, remember just how bad Jacob's prayer was. Lord, if you bring me back home, then you will be my God. That's not a good prayer. What Jacob is doing is he's expressing his greater love for the lesser good of home more than his love for God, and he's expressing it to God himself. But are our prayers any better? Do we find ourselves praying more fervently for lesser goods than the greatest good that is communion with and love for God? We may be more subtle, we may not use language like this, but all of us, we all pray like Jacob. But God has given us words by which we can approach him. We can approach God with prayers that God has given us, prayers like Psalm 16. You make me, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God even gives us words that we can wrestle with him with. God knows that this life is not a life of easy answers. God knows that there are deep questions that we will continually struggle with, and God gives us words even for this. Consider Psalm 73. The psalmist is looking around. He's seeing all of the injustice in the world, and he's wondering, is everything that I've done totally in vain? Has it all come to naught? The psalmist asks God, speaks to God. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And think about the psalms themselves. Do you realize that of any one particular kind of psalm, there's more psalms of lament than any other type? What is God trying to teach us here? Jacob knows that life is full of lament and grief. We know that life is full of lament and grief. And in the Psalms, we know that God knows that life is full of lament and grief. And God is preparing us for that. God, in his love and mercy, has given us words to express our lament, our sorrow, and our grief to him. 
Again, God is not safe, but he's good. And what's the practical application here? Constantly pray the Psalms. Church, constantly pray the Psalms. When we pray the Psalms, we learn to speak to God. We learn to see the world rightly and rightly love God and neighbor. When we pray the Psalms, we're like toddlers who are learning to speak the language of their parents. The ancient African Bishop Augustine says this about the Psalms. If the Psalm is praying, pray yourselves. If it is groaning, you groan too. If it is happy, rejoice. If it is crying out in hope, you hope as well. If it expresses fear, be afraid. Augustine is telling us that when we pray the Psalms, we learn to be human with all of the deep joys and struggles and questions and laments that come with being human in a fallen world. The Psalms teach us what to expect in life and how to respond to it. A common and important complaint in, in foreign language education when you're, when you're learning another language is, is that actually most language learning textbooks and, and maybe you can relate to this from your own experience in, in learning a language in a, in a classroom. They only teach students how to do things like go shopping, to talk about the weather, uh, to, to check into hotels. They don't teach students how to be human in the new language and culture. Students practice dialogues that teach them how to buy airplane tickets, but they rarely, if ever, learn the much more important language functions of things like apologizing, forgiving, confessing, confronting, consoling in the new language and culture. They're not learning to function in the new language and culture with any depth at all. This is not true of the Psalms. The Psalms gives us a language before God for the deepest griefs and highest joys of this life. Do you want to be a person of depth? Pray the Psalms. But even here, we have to ask, is this enough? In the Psalms, we are given, Jacob is given, words by which we can approach God, God's own prayers to himself, so to speak. But as we speak these words of great love, for, of great joy for God, do we actually love God in this way? Are our hearts loving him with that fullness of joy that we're expressing in these prayers? While we might not, while we might not say, I love home more than you, God, do we still search our hearts and find that we love home or any lesser good more than we love God? If God's priesthood stops at just giving us the words to speak, is this enough? No, it's not. It's not enough. And that brings us to our third and final point, Christ's prayers. Step back and think about how bad Jacob's prayer is here. But also think deeply about how bad our prayers often are. But think deeper still about the reality of the Psalms, that God gives us prayers to pray to God. The Christian doctrine of, of inspiration, it tells us that God works through the human authors of the Bible so that both 
God and the human authors are fully authoring these words, fully and simultaneously. But what that means is that God in the Psalms is actually authoring the prayers of sinners. God descends so low as to speak for us in our present sinful state. In a sense, God speaks as only we should speak. For instance, it's, it's not only David, but, but also God himself who authors Psalm 51, who authors these words. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Think deeply about just how low the priesthood of God goes, how far it descends. God gives us words to approach God as sinners. But how are we to make sense of this? What is going on here? Well, years later, years later, someone will come and he will say to a young man named Nathaniel, he will say, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened in the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's Christ that says this. But what does this mean? Clearly, he's referencing this account in Jacob's life, but what does it mean that Christ would call himself this ladder, this staircase that stretches between heaven and earth? Well, remember that the ladder represents the dynamic of kingship, of of God coming to humanity, and of priesthood, of humanity coming to God. And who is Christ? Well, Christ is both God and human. He's the divine person of the Son, adding a human nature to his divine nature. And so, as God, Christ is the perfect king. He's the ruler and creator of all things. And as human, Christ is the perfect priest, presenting his own perfect life before God on our behalf. Christ is both God descending to us as king and humanity ascending to God as priest. And Christ, as he tells Nathaniel, just is the reality of Jacob's ladder. And so God does not just give us words to pray. If that was all that he did, neither we nor Jacob would be able to pray as we ought. To pray rightly, we have to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But in Christ, God prays for us. The theologian Michael Cameron, he he writes the following about how Augustine speaks of Christ praying for us as our great high priest. Cameron says the following, quote, Out of overflowing love for his body, Christ speaks to God in prayer on behalf of his least ones by assuming their identity before God. The man took up not only his people's sins, but also their very persons, and that is how he speaks for them. Christ's intercession means that he prays for his people by praying as his people, end quote. Consider, for instance, the Lord's Prayer, which we prayed together early in the, in the service. And, and Chris, Chris brought this out. As Christ leads his people in prayer, Christ prays as only he can properly pray, calling upon God as his own Father. Yet he does so as our Father, our Father, sharing his relationship to the Father with those united to him through faith. But Christ also does something else. And remember, this is Christ praying 
And what he prays is forgive us our debts, our debts. What is going on here? How can Christ speak of our debts? These are the debts that we deserve for failing to love God and neighbor, something that Christ has never done. Every second of Christ's human life, we see him loving God and neighbor perfectly. These are not Christ's debts. These are the debts of everyone besides Christ. Yet Christ nonetheless prays, forgive our, our debts. What is Christ doing here? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at another place where Christ speaks words that only we should speak. On the cross, Christ quotes Psalm 22. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ here speaks as only we should speak because we alone deserve to be forsaken by God. But Christ experiences this forsakenness for us. He experiences, according to his human nature, the very wrath of God. Why in the Lord's Prayer can Christ pray that our debts be forgiven? Because Christ has taken that debt of sin upon himself. He prays, he prays and experiences only what we deserve. And so Christ prays with us as us. He prays in our very place before God. Christ takes our sin and he takes our very voice. But Christ also gives us something. He gives us his standing before the Father of his perfectly good and perfectly righteous life that loves it perfectly at all times. Christ experiences and prays what only we should. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? so that we can pray and experience what only he should, our Father who is in heaven. He is our great high priest. And how are we to receive Christ standing before God the Father and let him take the wrath that we alone deserve? By faith. By faith, we rest in the priesthood of Christ. Faith is trust, and it is a trust that Christ has taken our guilt and given us his righteousness Faith is resting in the reality that Christ is both king and priest, both God and human, both God coming down to us and humanity coming up to God, that Christ is the very reality of Jacob's ladder. And in faith, we continue to cling to the priesthood of Christ. Just as Christ takes our sinful lives and presents them to God in his own perfect righteousness, so he takes our half-hearted prayers that never love God like they should in this life. And he presents them by way of his own perfect love for God. In Christ, God loves God for us. We are like Jacob. Even if our words are better than Jacob's, our hearts are in the same place. Yes, God renews our hearts. Yes, God ever grows our hearts for him in love. But in this life, our loves will always wane. Yet Christ prays for us as us. My, my children, they, they recently had a piano recital and, and their teacher played with them. And she, she played a rhythm in, in the background and it, it not only made their notes sound brighter, but it made their mistakes not sound like mistakes. 
she made even their mistakes sound good. It was really quite amazing to watch. But this is the same exact thing that Christ does with our prayers. And so let us pray, knowing that Christ, who is the very reality of Jacob's ladder, will present them as pure and perfect before the Father. If there's a place for Jacob in his half-hearted prayer, then there's always a place for us in our lukewarm prayers. Let us pray then with full assurance that we are heard and that even our most self-centered prayers are made beautiful in God's sight because of Christ. Let us not pray out of guilt, but out of gratefulness and gladness for Christ's ongoing priesthood. Christ not only loves us, but Christ loves God for us. In Christ, and this is an amazing truth, in Christ, God loves God for us. Let us pray. God, our Father, even this prayer that we offer now, we know that it is flawed. We know that it is half-hearted. But Lord, Right now, as we offer this prayer, we know that your son, Jesus Christ, is seated at your right hand. He's taking this prayer, and he's removing all of our self-centeredness, all of our selfishness, all the ways we fail to trust you, and he is making it beautiful and blameless and perfect, and he is offering it to you. Thank you for his ongoing work. Thank you that he is both our great high king and our great high priest. In his name we pray, amen.